Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Skybridge Bitcoin Review. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't watched the show before, my name is John Darcy. I'm a director of business development uh, here at Skybridge, uh, joined every week by usually one of our uh, managing partners, and then also oftentimes by a special guest. On this show, uh, what we do, we like to break down what we think are the biggest stories in the world of Bitcoin from uh, the previous week as well as make it very interactive and answer your questions. So again, just a reminder, there's a Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. If you have any questions uh, for our hosts or our guests today, uh, please submit them to that Q&A box and we'll try to fit them in uh, in this sort of 30, 35 minute show is generally where we like to keep it. But as I mentioned, uh, we often have somebody from Skybridge as well as a special guest and, and that's the case today. I'm joined by Brett Messing, who's the president and chief operating officer here at Skybridge. And as we like to say, our Bitcoin maximalist in chief, as well as Tom Jessup, uh, who is the head of Fidelity Digital Assets, one of the first movers uh, in the Bitcoin space in terms of building out a digital asset division within that storied company. And then, uh, you know, I think it's a great place to start uh, this week, Brett and Tom, uh, you know, we'll let Tom introduce himself first, but uh, to talk about what Fidelity is doing, not just their decision to be an early mover in the space, but more recently, uh, reports about uh, Fidelity potentially growing its team on the digital asset side of the business. But first, Tom, I just want you to introduce yourself briefly, uh, your role, your your history in the industry and things like that for our audience. Sure. Uh, thank you, John. And thank you, Brett, for having me. So I'm Tom Jessup. I've been at Fidelity for about uh, a little over three years. Uh, I currently run the digital asset business at Fidelity, which has really two, two parts. One is a, a nascent asset management business, which we launched uh, in September of last year. And the core business is uh, effectively a brokerage and custody platform for institutions, uh, which we announced in 18, and we onboarded our first client in early 19. Uh, prior to Fidelity, I had done a brief stint at a crypto startup uh, called Chain. And prior to that, it spent a lot of time at Goldman Sachs. Um, in our strategic investments team, uh, investing in uh, really capital markets, infrastructure, and fintech before the term fintech was applied to tech companies focused on finance. So my journey started probably in 14 or 15, uh, looking at the space, getting very interested. We actually, our first crypto investment at Goldman in 15 was uh, in Circle. I know he's been in the news recently. We were a participant in their Series B financing. And that's really where I got very interested and, and quite passionate about the space. Uh, and uh, it's obviously was a big part of my, my life and focus then, and it's uh, my exclusive focus now. So uh, thank you so much for for having me. And um, John, would you like me to dive into the, yeah, the news? So, so let's let's start with that news. So as I mentioned, you know, Fidelity uh, by creating the digital assets unit was one of the first organizations uh, to really you know, put a flag in the ground that we're going to be involved on the custody side and different parts of this crypto business. You know, it's it's Bitcoin, but it's well beyond that. It's sort of building new financial infrastructure. But there were a lot of reports out this week that Fidelity Digital Assets plans to grow its team by as much as 70% to meet demand that you're experiencing from clients, from partners. We have the horse here, so we'd love to hear it from the horse's mouth. Are those reports true? Are you guys hiring aggressively? And if so, why? Yeah, we have been. And uh, we're taking sort of the next uh, big step in our evolution. So I like, I mean, maybe just to provide your audience with a little bit of a timeline. You know, Fidelity's got a very rich history of uh, R&D in the technology space. But what I mean by that is basic tech R&D. Like right now, we're looking at quantum computing and the impact on portfolio construction and, and risk management. But several years ago, it was blockchain. And I think we had a view then, which has been uh, confirmed repeatedly over time, that this is a transformational technology for financial services. 
And uh, our first foray into the space was really to deliver an institutional quality solution for investors that wanted to uh, transact and hold Bitcoin. Um, as the market's grown and we've seen growth in our business, we are we want to expand the capability to a wider range of assets. Uh, think about other points of uh, integration with the broader Fidelity organization, uh, as we're seeing demand from many client segments that Fidelity currently serves. Uh, and then importantly, given that this is a 24-7 market and, uh, you know, quite frankly, looks a lot different to, to other asset classes, maybe save foreign exchange, you know, having the ability to support customer activity around the clock uh, in multiple jurisdictions is, is an important part of, you know, kind of the next step in our, our, our evolution. So obviously that hiring is very focused on technology professionals. Um, we've got uh, development centers in places like Dublin and Boston. Uh, rally during North Carolina. So we are uh, fairly broad in terms of where we're looking for talent. And, uh, you know, maybe a plug for Fidelity. I've been here three years. You know, it's a great organization, um, private company, very committed to the space. Uh, and I think we can, you know, offer very compelling career paths for folks that want to come in and be part of the digital asset journey within a big traditional institution. Yeah. And, and I know before I, I asked Brett his opinion on, on the implications of that news and Fidelity's continued growth, you know, for us, we did a lot of research and, and evaluation of the crypto space as a potential uh, investment avenue uh, at Skybridge in, in the 2017-2018 period, you know, as Fidelity continued to build out its digital assets division and the infrastructure uh, within the industry grew with an entrant of a company like Fidelity. It, it allowed us to, a couple of years later, finally make that leap into the space. You know, the fact that counterparties and, and service providers and partners in the space like Fidelity exist, uh, you know, gave us and our clients and our partners uh, the confidence that we needed to make that move. So just wanted to, to put that part in. But Brett, what do you think the implications of uh, the fact that a company like Fidelity, which is always sort of on the new frontier of technology, but what are the implications of the fact that despite what we're seeing is sort of a pullback in the price of Bitcoin, you're seeing an organization like Fidelity hiring so aggressively into their digital assets division? Well, first of all, I want to dismiss the idea that we're in a pullback. Like, this is a bear market, okay? <laughs> like, it's a bear market. It has all the bearings of a bear market. We had a 50% decline. Volumes are light. Volumes on options are light. Our participants today are light. You know what I mean? It's um, This is what bear markets feel like. Now, everything happens in a sped-up time frame. So the bear market could be over by August or September, but, like, you know, this does not feel like, again, I've been doing this for a while, as says, Tom, this does not feel like a correction. It feels like a bear market. And I think that's what makes what Tom and Fidelity are doing so important. And I, I do just want to add to what you were saying, John. We're customers of, of Fidelity for our Bitcoin fund. They, they hold most of our Bitcoin. And I would say Fidelity being in the custody business was a but for. I mean, there were two events that enabled us to get into the business. One was being able to custody you know, the, the Bitcoin at, 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 a, at Fidelity with that trusted name. And, you know, Paul Tudor Jones coming out so publicly gave us sort of air cover um, in, in a way that I, I don't think we would have had before that. Uh, but, Tom, we are, we are in this period where I think people are frozen. I mean, we're seeing it. I mean, um, Anthony wouldn't want me to admit this, but, you know, flows into our fund have, have ground to a halt. Um, you know, there's just there's just a level of sort of malaise in the marketplace. And so, um, you know, great businesses invest at this time. But I guess I guess are you are you seeing something different? Um, 
No, Brad, I, I agree with everything you've said about the bear market and, you know, just uh, kind of a fairly negative environment in terms of sentiment and just a lot of moving parts, whether it's the discussion around, uh, my, you know, hash rate drop, miners moving out of China, um, all of these things, you know, where macro, you know, rate sensitivity, if rates go up, what happens to Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? So I think that, um, you know, we we are building and investing for the long term. You know, when we started this business, the thesis was around the technology and the enablement of existing fidelity businesses and the creation of new ones. And I think that thesis is still intact. And we, you know, try not to over-index on price. We tend to look at other indicators or indicia of interest. We look at what's going on, you know, whether it's venture money coming into the space, developments in DeFi, uh, the the broadening of the, the of the clients who are coming to us asking about the space. You know, when we first started this business, it was, um, you know, fairly sophisticated investors such as, as Skybridge and others. And now we're seeing a lot more interest. And so we try to look at this broader uh, set of facts around where things are going and not over-index too much on the price. You know, my, the favorite analog to me is, you know, at one point, and you might have know the exact number, you know, uh, Amazon in 2000 or 2001 at the bottom was a um, single-digit uh, stock price. Um, that didn't mean that the internet or e-commerce or other things were, um, you know, were, uh, were, were foregone. Um, it was just growing pains, you know, uh, the need for broader adoption, the need for better technology. And I think we look across the ecosystem and we see a lot of things to be positive about um, current market environment notwithstanding. And by the way, as you know, we've seen this environment in Bitcoin uh, frequently over the past three to five years, um, right? These yep. massive runs and then these significant drawdowns, consolidation, and then things usually pick up again. So uh, it's a bit gut-wrenching if you're new to the space, but if you've been here for a while, uh, it's an unfortunate pattern, but um, one that, um, let's say, what do they say about history? It rhymes, whatever. But anyway, right. that's how we think about it. So, so, Tom, one of the things that we've experienced, and I don't think we're alone in this, is tremendous amount of interest, really low conversion. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like going back to, let's say, the micro strategy conference, right, in in early February, which was great, right? There was a lot of, you know, heat and excitement coming out of that and the idea that, you know, it would take these institutions several months, but we, you know, we probably start seeing adoption now. Um, we certainly have a nice entry price, I think, certainly relative to where Bitcoin was in the spring. Um, I guess, are you seeing anything different than that? Um, and, and what do you think it'll take to get people to go from, I'm really interested, I'm taking it seriously, I'm putting in the time, but nah, I can't, I'm not buying it. So it feels like that's where we are. At least, at least a large cohort exists in, in in that stage I just described. Yeah, I think it really depends on the client segment. I mean, I think that um, you know, if you take maybe some of the more traditional clients and maybe take corporates as an example, you know, we, we've spoken to a number of them, and you know, um, generally speaking, fairly risk averse, uh, trying to figure out you know, in terms of rates or other macro conditions, what it means for their their cash balances and how they deploy those. Um, and I think also, you know, how to think about these assets in a broader portfolio construct, right? So, you know, people have done analysis of equity portfolios with a Bitcoin allocation or 60-40, you know, um, you know, if you're a corporate treasurer, how do you think about the role of Bitcoin in a portfolio of, you know, liquid uh, fixed income short-term securities? Like, is there a role or is it a balance sheet investment, et cetera? So I think there's still a lot of education that needs to happen. 
I also think, you know, that this, the second issue is probably our implementation, right? Because I think that for, um, for many investors, you know, there are potential challenges with uh, owning the assets directly. Uh, they're intangible, long-lived assets, so they have certain negative implications for, for the balance sheet and valuation of assets. So it then becomes a question, am I buying a fund? Am I buying directly? And, and perhaps in this environment, people just kind of put pens down and say, you know, I'll wait until things perk up again. It's not, it's not a burning platform issue at this point. Um, so it's sort of the mirror image, I think, of what we saw at the turn of the year with the price running up and just the almost the manic intensity of people wanting to be onboarded. Um, we're, we're seeing sort of the inverse of that. Um, and, you know, a big part of our value proposition is education. You know, Fidelity serves a lot of these corporate clients uh, as well as a lot of investing clients. And so we're doing a lot of work to bring these assets and our point of view to the client where they sit. We're not trying to evangelize about Bitcoin in one way or another, but in the context of their business or portfolio construct, trying to help educate so that when they do come around, we'll be, we'll be first in line. Well, I, I'm shamelessly evangelizing. Just want you to know that. But uh, <laughs> so, but what do you think, I mean, I guess this goes to both sort of, I guess, market conditions and, and, and your business and our business for that matter. What events, like, you know, because we can talk about China. I think China is just so incredibly bullish. Like, I can't think of something more bullish that could have happened yeah. here. And I understand that it's going to take, people don't see that initially, and it's going to take a little bit of time for that to get digested. Um, you know, what do you think could sort of, you know, re-energize the market and the market participants, right? Because ultimately, it's this is an adoption story, right? If we get adoption, we get buying, we get higher prices, and, and that virtuous cycle you know, which we which we were experiencing for the prior year, would get re-energized. Is there anything on the, on the horizon that you're looking for that might, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting out? question. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's a little difficult to answer. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, the, the, the last leg up was obviously catalyzed by the pandemic and, uh, you know, the call to monitor and fiscal stimulus and, and all of that. And the, the thesis of Bitcoin as a, as a uh, scarce scarce asset. I think now it's a little more, little more challenging because you've got this confluence of call it negative news, right? We, we certainly see more concern or questions from investors about ESG, um, you know, which again for more traditional investors is something perhaps they think about more than uh, you know a more uh, risk on or more um, let's say market markets oriented uh, type of investor. Um, I, I agree with you that the the movement of uh, mining out of China is probably one of the longer term um, most bullish things that could be happening for. Uh, for the ecosystem, um, but again, and maybe it's it's education. I think that's perhaps perceived as though the hash rate's dropping, that creates some negative impact on the network. Um, so therefore, I'm going to wait to see what happens there. I don't understand it, um, and I, I and honestly, I just I can't tell you what is the thing that's going to turn this around. Um, uh, it may just be a lot of these issues kind of being tamped down or addressed, and. You know the animal forces pick up again, and you know suddenly we're moving we're moving in a more positive direction. Tom, you you brought up the ESG issue, which you know Elon Musk uh, brought a spotlight on, and, and while he did it inelegantly, I, I think he actually did the community a service because I think you know the inevitability of of green Bitcoin mining it's going to happen faster. Um, but you know we're you know I'll, I'll break a little bit of news here, although I might have in a prior episode. We're actually going to be we are buying some carbon credits um, to offset, you know, the Bitcoin we own. Um, and we will be announcing that in early April. Today, the Winklevosses came out and they're doing something yeah. that we had looked into actually with Professor at the University of Chicago, Climate Vault. 
Is that something that Fidelity would look or are you considering providing some type of you know option where you where someone could be a customer of yours and you know green their Bitcoin concurrently if, if ESG is important to them? It's not something we're doing currently. It is something I, I think we would absolutely consider. I think a lot of our focus has been, again, around trying to educate and dispel some of these um, misconceptions and then, and then obviously recognize the, the places where the, the ecosystem is not, call it, um, doing a great job in terms of consumption. So that's really been our, been our angle. Um, it, but I think we would consider something that gives investors the, uh, the ability to um, uh, effectively eliminate that as a, as a concern. Right. Uh, it seems like a fairly, fairly viable uh, approach. No, it would be great. I'd encourage you to do that because, you know, we, you know, we, we've gone through the process. It's, it, 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 it's, um, it's not super hard, but, you know, there's a, it, there's a fair amount of elbow grease and time that goes into it. If, if someone had an off the shelf solution, it would have been, you know, you probably would have done it months ago. Um, yeah. We sort of had to figure it out. John, I feel like I've taken you out of the action. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to be I'm out of the equation. Back to you. Yeah, I'm I'm like a referee in a sporting event. The less I'm involved, the, the better it is for everybody. We can hear the the, uh, the senior folks here discussing the issues that matter. But I want to talk about Circle. So it's it's serendipitous that you're joining us today, Tom. And we scheduled this weeks ago, but Circle is in the news. Um, they recently announced uh, that they're going to be going public via a SPAC. Values the company at about uh, 4.5 billion. Circle, as I understand, has been through multiple iterations as a firm but has really taken off recently uh, in large part due to the growth of their stablecoin business, USDC. While Tether still, there's concerns about uh, you know, whether the reserves uh, really back up the volume of Tether that's uh, in circulation. Um, they've never really had a full audit. You know, they had a settlement with the New York Attorney General, but there's still questions and concerns that persist about Tether. Meanwhile, USDC has, has grown, I think, 50-fold in the last year. It's up 3,000%. Uh, even just in 2021, there's about $25 billion in USDC in circulation. As you've watched Circle grow and evolve, uh, what excites you about that company? And, and and why are stablecoins so important to the growth of the ecosystem? Yeah, so look, I mean, regarding the company, I mean, I've known Jeremy since 2015 when, when we invested. Um, and the thing that actually got us quite comfortable with, with uh, investing in a, a crypto company back then was the fact that Jeremy was very... Uh, foot forward in terms of engaging regulators and really trying to bring some clarity to uh, the emerging crypto ecosystem. Back then, the primary product was CirclePay. It was effectively a, a Bitcoin wallet payment um, payment platform for for remittances, so to speak. And so, in some ways, you know, Circle's coming back to its um, its kind of initial uh, business conception. And so, I think that um, it, it's interesting to me. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, obviously the regulators have been making a little bit of noise about, about stable coins. Um, and I think there's probably a, a thought experiment or, or philosophical argument coming up between, you know, CBDC versus stable coin. And I think actually one of the vice chairs of the Fed sort of raised this point the other day saying, you know, with the appropriate amount of regulation, um, could stable coins be effectively a, a, a way to deliver some of the benefits of CBDC, but in a way to enlist the power of um, of, uh, of the, the private sector uh, and tech entrepreneurs. And it's an interesting point of view. And I think if you then expand that circle out of it and say, okay, well, what is the potential opportunity for a company like Circle or for stable coins more generally? Clearly they play an important role in the crypto ecosystem from a settlement standpoint, a liquidity standpoint. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, perhaps a big part of what Circle's trying to do in the future is um, 
figure out ways to deliver, you know, be better, cheaper uh, payment and remittance capabilities to corporates. Um, and they've, you know, rolled out some products to that end. Um, and that's, that's pretty exciting. When you think about the cost of um, corporate remittances in large dollars going through the correspondent banking system, incredibly expensive, contrast that to a stablecoin-based settlement that settles in a matter of seconds for, for pennies. And so I think um, my guess is you'll start to see more traction in that, in that direction, you know, sort of balancing the, the crypto usage and more real world or call it um, uh, the banking type applications. And I think it's, it's very exciting. And coming full circle, you know, I think Jeremy and team, because they had that experience dealing with um, the Treasury and other regulators throughout their circle career, I think they're well positioned to be able to make some of these arguments about stable coins on behalf of the, the crypto ecosystem to regulators who obviously want to really figure this out. If we do end up getting a digital dollar that's built on sort of blockchain rails, how would it differ from a stable coin like a USDC? Yeah, I mean, I, th I mean, I think it really depends on the implementation, but like fundamentally, or maybe, maybe to oversimplify, it's the difference between, um, you know, the Fed potentially issuing a third form of currency, you know, you've got cash, you've got reserves, and now there's a digital uh, asset that can be managed as part of the overall money supply versus a framework that says, look, if you're a bank and you want to issue a stable coin or you're a stable coin issuer and you keep reserves in a bank, there are a set of regulations and controls that ensure that um, the reserves backing the stable coins, which at that point look like an IOU effectively on a bank account, uh, you know, are, are properly reserved and audited and all of that. Um, and that's effectively what Center is looking to do, right? They do monthly attestations about assets in the portfolio against stable coins outstanding. And my guess is that if there is that decision between CBDC or stablecoin, um, the regulation will move more towards the uh, verification of the underlying uh, fiat assets and the reconciliation of the fiat assets to uh, the issued stable coins. Um, I, I also think in the circle story, I think it's also important to note that um, David Puth, who spent a long time at JP Morgan uh, and for many years was the CEO of uh, CLS, um, which is a pretty significant part of the existing market infrastructure around FX settlement is now running the center organization uh, and so I think David is really well positioned to um, help Circle and others in that ecosystem begin to think about the application of stable coins to uh, use cases outside of, uh, out of crypto. Yeah. And the fact that Circle is going to be a public company is certainly elevates the level of scrutiny uh, that regulators will be able to put USDC under in terms of regular audits you know, that, that any public company uh, has to undergo. And, and I think that was you know, from reading the tea leaves, that was a large motivation for wanting to go public via the SPAC is to, you know, subject themselves to that level of, of scrutiny. And you mentioned Jeremy's, you know, the fact that he's always wanted to court regulators in a very aggressive way, whereas others in the industry are more interested in sort of disrupting old ways of, of regulating and, and uh, building financial markets. Brad, do you have anything to add or questions about Circle and, and uh, what, what uh, Tom was just speaking about? I would just use it to jump off to ask a related question to Tom, which is, you know, um, the regulatory outlook presently, um, uh, as I sort of feared, at least from a Bitcoin standpoint, it seems to be getting a bit politicized. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Brad Sherman, you know, I'm an Angelino. I happen to know said a bunch of silly things at the House Financial Services uh, Committee, Elizabeth Warren who spent her whole career railing against banks is doing the bidding for the large commercial banks. It almost feels like it's a knee jerk. Well, if Wyoming, Texas, and the Republican mayor of Miami like it, it must be bad. Um, 
Um, but what, what are your feelings about the, just the, the general regulatory environment? And does, it, does, it, does it pose a risk um, or is it really just noise and we're sort of, you know, we've reached, quote, too big to fail, at least from a Bitcoin standpoint? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I tend to, um, this may be somewhat uh, counterintuitive, I tend to view this as actually positive from the perspective that we know it's the thing that needs to be addressed. And uh, at some point with enough attention, uh, it will be addressed. And the hope is that it's addressed in the right way. And we as an industry need to need to play a part in that. Um, you know, for example, you know, I, there, there's been talk about, you know, better investor protection with exchanges and other things, which I think that any of us from uh, a traditional financial services background uh, think is table stakes. That's essential to growing an industry and getting these assets into the hands of investors. The question is, you know, how do you have a fact-based discussion and depoliticize it? And that's where, you know, we, we, we try to provide a lot of that type of education. You know, we're now part of the um, uh, Crypto Council and Innovation with a few other players in the space to try to bring that voice and engage more directly. Uh, because I still think there's a lot of um, bad information flying around. Um, but something's got to be done. And a simple question, if there's, a, if there's a desire to regulate exchanges, you know, how do you do that when the CFTC effectively regulates certain digital asset commodities that trade on the same exchanges as things that potentially look like securities that are under the, C, the SEC's purview, right? So I think that, um, again, I think it's noise. We shouldn't ignore it. But I think if it has the net effect of creating this, um, this galvanizing force where we finally have discussions about how to uh, build regulation that supports development of a nascent asset class in an industry. I mean, that's something I think we're hopeful for, you know, with the appropriate amount of, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for, um, you know, the appropriate caveats, but it, it's got to happen and it's got to happen soon. And if this is the way it happens, then we just got to be ready to engage. No, I agree, I agree with that. I look, I think the government's right, primary concern is they want people to pay their taxes. Like I, like I, I often say on our Form 1040, which we all filed this year, right? The first question after I right, yeah. address was, right, have you bought or sold cryptocurrencies, right? They never asked, have you bought or sold meth, right? Have you bought or sold, yeah. you know, hand grenades? Yeah. So, um, and I do think from a political standpoint, and, you know, I'm the House Democrat here at, Dem at, at, at Skybridge. Um, if you look at the, the, the ownership by, by based on polling of Bitcoin, you know, communities of color own it at almost a 2X rate uh, to not to white communities, um, and those. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because you know they they tend to have to, you know, they've been mistreated by large institutions by the by the the state generally, and so the idea of I think a stateless money um, is probably more appealing. They do also play the lottery at much higher rates, also, so it, it might be a bit of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but and nonetheless, those are voters. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully we'll see um, less of a knee-jerk response from the progressive community on Bitcoin because, you know, um, again, I, I, I think probably, I, I don't want to speak for you. I know I find the possibility what Bitcoin can do for sort of financial inclusion to be, uh, you know, pretty inspiring. Yeah, and there are some tremendous stories out there about, you know, people in places like, you know, uh, Argentina, Nigeria, Turkey, uh, Venezuela, where, you know, people's lives have been changed, their financial net worth has been salvaged or saved um, because of this um, non-sovereign, 24-7, easily accessible technology and, and value. And I, um, 
you know, we should be celebrating those types of stories. Again, you know, your POV, POV might be different living in a stable, established uh, economy like the U.S., but for many people around the world and even people in certain parts of the U.S., uh, there is real tangible personal value. And we have to, I think, be a bit more, uh, a bit clear about how we talk about that and the use cases and the opportunity. Well, I just want to say, I think it's great what you guys are doing with Coinbase and Paradigm and, you know, maybe, you know, ask your DC folks to, to look at those polling numbers because, you know, they might be helpful as you, as you educate uh, lawmakers. Yeah. Back to you, That's John. an interesting, interesting fact. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go to some audience questions. I think it's a good question uh, in the context of the fact that we've had several hot inflation readings uh, over the course of the last few months. And one of the narratives around Bitcoin is that it's a great inflation hedge, but we haven't really seen Bitcoin perk up on news of finally these hot inflation readings. And generally, we'll have a lot of people on this show on our Salt Talk series, and there's people assign different values to crypto. You know, why are they bullish on crypto? Some people are bullish on it because of central bank, you know, monetary policy. Some people are bullish on it just from a technology standpoint that it's remaking financial infrastructure. As you look at Bitcoin and you look at crypto, why are you excited about it? Are you excited about it more, you know, because of reckless monetary policy? Or are you more excited about it, uh, you know, from a financial technology standpoint? Good question. I mean, for me personally, um, it's a bit of both. I mean, I think I was originally attracted to the space for more of the macro uh, aspects of it. And then I quickly kind of fell in love with the more technical and social implications. And then obviously with the explosion of other protocols and everything going on in the space, you just, I don't know, you quickly realize that this is a very transformational, uh, the, the potential is very transformational. And we're at a very interesting point in time where you have these macro conditions, you have a generational change in terms of how younger people think about investing in value. And all these things are coming together and creating this really interesting um, set of conditions where, um, you know, this this called potentially generational change in how we transact value could could come into being. So I don't I don't really index on one versus the other. I mean, as far as the inflation hedge is concerned, um, and I'd be curious to get Brett's perspective on this. Um, uh, you know, I don't. I don't think that the uh, the absence of Bitcoin rallying when uh, inflation numbers get hot is suggestive that it's not. I think it really depends on, uh, you know, who the investors are. Um, you have a lot of retail investors. My guess is they don't think much about Bitcoin as an inflation hedge, and you know, the pot is off the boil because the the market's not running. There may be other long term holders that do, and while they're not adding to positions, they're not selling. So. Um, I think we probably need to go to some form of a cycle like we have with other assets to see what actually is the performance of Bitcoin or other assets in certain macro environments. But Brad, as someone who uh, who thinks about this on a more regular basis than I do, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I try to sort of scope out a little bit. And it's it, it seems to me that they're just a, from an inflation standpoint, right, there, there, there are two huge trends that are ultimately going to keep inflation under control, which is just the, the deflationary force of technology, right, and demographics. And and maybe we run hot for a couple of years, but but ultimately, I, I just think what, and my sense is we're probably somewhat close to being contemporary, but we experienced in the 70s. Just I don't, I don't see that. I, I, I see this as yeah. being tra- a transitory thing. The, the other trend that I think is just irreversible is just the devaluation of currencies. Um, and you know, Bitcoin represents a, a, a hedge against that. You know, you you, you referenced earlier I, 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 people doing historical analyses of you know Bitcoin in a portfolio, and look, we use the tools we have. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're just so early on this that what's going to happen tomorrow is 
is going to bear no relation to what happened yesterday. You know what I mean? It's you yeah. Know, if you if you spend time on Bitcoin Twitter, you'll see. I'm sure you did these charts where we are in the halving cycle, how long the bull market should go. And, you know, people are making projections based on two data points. Um, you know, there was no fidelity custody in 2017, right? There was no Michael Saylor. And we are still at a point where single actors matter, uh, which might scare some large institutions off. But for me, as someone who sees the opportunity to make a lot of money here, that that just is validating that it's early. You know how early yeah. it is. Um, so you know, I I guess the the inflation is unhelpful to the extent that there are a class of investors who might be um, uh, that might freeze them from otherwise buying Bitcoin. But that to me is just short term noise. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. So we, we have another question in the chat from Eric, uh, and he's asking, we, we talked about institutional demand. There, there seems to be a lot of institutions that are doing their homework, that are that are bullish on the story, but they're waiting maybe for regulatory clarity or or potentially other factors uh, before they really take the, the dive into Bitcoin. In your view, uh, Tom, where do you think the next wave of institutional interest is going to come from, let's say, if we get you know greater regulatory clarity? Is it from the pension system that view this as a you know a long-term asset to guard against you know, inflation concerns is it from university endowments is it is it you know hedge funds continuing to have deeper penetration into the market you know, where do you see that institutional demand coming from or at least the people that you guys are in dialogue with the most yeah i would hope it's from the more traditional set of investors I and mean, i think what we have seen and i kind of referenced earlier is the uh, change in the composition of our client base to include more of those types of, of clients um and so I think what we would expect is to see broader adoption, all this, the segments we serve, but hopefully more uh, increasing interest um, among the more traditional investor class. And they, they tend to take longer. Um, they tend to look at things in the context of a broader portfolio view. You know, when we did our survey last year and the year before, we actually did our third annual survey, which, you know, we'll publish the results, you know, reasonably soon. You know, the two biggest uh, blockers um, for institutions are, are interesting, right? One, the first is volatility. And the second is um, lack of uh, fundamental frameworks to think about valuing assets. Um, now, one could argue, you know, you're, are you taking a paradigm that you would use to value fixed income securities or equities and trying to apply that, not directly, but that same line of thinking to digital assets? Or is there a completely different set of factors and data sources that, um, that inv investors can tap into to have that same sense of, uh, call it, security on making a fundamental investment decision, but where the inputs are perhaps wallet movements or on-chain activity versus corporate balance sheets. Um, regulation, interestingly, um, is, is not a top three concern. Um, and I, I don't know what to attribute that to. Perhaps, um, like with any early stage technology or asset class, there's a view that you know the cost of entry is an uncertain regulatory environment, or perhaps they see that we are making modest progress you know, the news out of um, the OCC last year on bank regulation was positive, although no, that's that's sort of uh, in a state of flux. Um, the SEC did a few things at year end or, you know, trying to uh, get clarity on what it meant, what qualified custody meant in a digital asset context. So, you know, um, interestingly, regulation doesn't appear to be the, the primary concern. It's really the volatility. And um, if I went to my investment committee, what am I actually going to them with in terms of this is why we should be buying this specific asset? Right. 
last question we'll ask you, Tom, before we let you go, and it's from RJ in the chat. It's uh, it's about why do you think Bitcoin is going through this bear market cycle? Is it is it purely a China story? Is it, is it a matter of hash rate you know, falling precipitously because of of China's crackdown? So we're just going to have to work through that as you know hash rate uh, continues to reemerge as mining equipment is relocated to North America or Kazakhstan or wherever it's going. Uh, is it GBTC? You know, all these hedge funds yeah. started making that GBTC trade, you know, late in, in 2020, early 2021. That's unrolling a little bit. Um, you know, what, what are the reasons you think we're in sort of this period of malaise? Yeah, look, I think we, um, let's not forget, and, and maybe you guys can correct me, but I think, you know, uh, Bitcoin last September. So, uh, what, 10 months ago was sitting around 10,000, right? Right. <laughs> I'm not mistaken. So, you know, we, we've come very far, very fast. Um, and so I think what you've seen is, and again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Bitcoin has gone through several near-death experiences, quote unquote, or significant market corrections. Um, we're clearly in one now, and I think it's a confluence of bad news. I mean, pick your poison. Is it ESG? Is it the regulatory stuff? Is it the, the uh, lockup expert on GBTC? Is it uncertainty around China? Um, it could be all of the above, right? I think you know maybe people are looking for an excuse not not to get in, and, and it's it's normal. I mean, it's uh, maybe not what we want to see, but it's what happens in markets. Um, so I think perhaps a little bit of positive news around regulation, uh, or once people see, you know, hash rate actually has been coming up again, um, which is pretty interesting. Like literally a matter of weeks after the ban, so uh, you know we're seeing some resiliency in a you know, perhaps a, a, a bit more positive news flow and, and people will feel better about getting in. Brett, you have anything to add to that before we wrap up? I, I do. And, and remember, I was the one who at the beginning of the show said we're in a bear market. But but if I had said, if we the three of us spoke at the beginning of January and I said, China is going to launch a state attack on it. OK, they're going to kick out all mining. OK, it's the networks and essentially get unplugged overnight. They're going to not even allow people to like post on their equivalent of Twitter about crypto. They're going to, you know, shut off the off ramps. One, Elon Musk is going to pee all over Bitcoin and 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 highlight the ESG issue, which as we all know is a, is a real issue around the globe for investors. It's a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And and every time you watch the, the CNBC, it seems there's another, you know, leading politician, you know, you know, talking negatively about cryptocurrency as Tom sort of referenced, possibly overturning things that the last con- controller did that was friendly to Bitcoin. I think that's unlikely to happen, but they're at least reviewing, you know, prior orders. And I said to you, all those things are going to happen. And the GBTC, which you brought up, uh, 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 John, and Bitcoin is up, what, 14% for the year? You'd say there's no way, right? So yes, we're down 50% for the high, but we've taken that deluge of events, right? And... Mm-hmm. You know, if you had bought Bitcoin at the end of the year, you know, unplugged, and then you know, you'd say, oh, well, I'm outperforming the S&P. What's going on? And you'd be like, I can't believe it's up. Uh, <laughs> so I guess it all goes back to, right, it's a matter of perspective. Um, and, I, and I'll just close by saying I do agree with you, Tom. I, I think what will, because we'll, I've lived through bear markets, and the way they end is they sort of sneak up on you, which is the bad news just sort of stops and you start drifting higher. And then... All of a sudden, you realize, hey, well, we got to forty thousand. How did that happen? You know what I mean? And and, and I, I think it'll be quieter. I don't think there's going to be like a triggering event. I I, yeah. I think we'll, we'll it'll just you know we'll just sort of end with a whimper, which is fine with me. 
All right. Well, Tom, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, on the SkyBridge Bitcoin Review. Fidelity Digital Assets, a great partner. We're we're very happy to see you guys growing and flourishing in the space. You know, we think having the Fidelity name and having quality people like yourself working uh, in the industry is just a huge, huge positive for Bitcoin and just for the entire, you know, reimagining of financial infrastructure that we're seeing with blockchain technology. Uh, but thank you again so much for joining us. We hope to see you at our physical SALT conference uh, in September, uh, potentially. So uh, thanks. Looking again. forward to it. But thank you both for having me. It's been, been a great discussion. Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye.